A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Four centuries ago, a Muslim woman ruled an empire. Between 1611, when she became the 20th final and favorite wife of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, to 1627, when Jahangir died, Empress Nur Jahan exercised a position never before filled by a woman, true co-sovereign. She was the first Mughal woman to issue orders in her own right, signed in her own name. She championed social justice, she commanded troops, and she did something that only an emperor was allowed to do in 17th century India. She hunted tigers. Her name meant light of the world, and it was given to her by her husband, who himself had gone from his birth name of Prince Salim to his imperial title, Jahangir. But even Nur's Persian parents had given her a name that meant son of women. Written out by official historians to Jahangir's vengeful successor, Emperor Shah Jahan, and generations of colonialist and nationalist scholars, this remarkable ruling woman has been properly restored to history by today's guest, Professor Ruby Lau. Ruby Lau is Professor of South Asian History at Emory University and the author of three acclaimed books, including her wonderful biography, Empress, The Astonishing Reign of Nur Jahan, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. Professor Lal, thank you so much for making the time to join us to talk about this superb book, this amazing research that you've done on Nur Jahan. We're going to be talking about a woman who would become empress, who would be named Light of the World, which is what Nur Jahan means. But she was born in rather different circumstances <laughs> in modern day Afghanistan to Persian parents fleeing to India. Can you tell us a bit about those parents and the circumstances of the birth of the girl who would become Nur Jahan? Yes, but first of all, thank you for having me here. I'm really delighted to be part of it. And you begin the question on a very powerful note, thinking about who this person is, because Noor Jahan was not from the line of the great Mughals. So I think this is an important point to establish. The family was employed in various capacities by the Safavid monarchs of Iran. And he, her father seems to have held some kind of financial position and ran into debt around the late 1570s, 1576 or thereabouts. But also it's the political situation that was really very dire. Iran had a very long history of tremendous playfulness with multicultural forms of existence, different languages, different leanings. But by this time, the state was very stringent. So we don't know exactly why, but there were a set of reasons why they left. And they were not the first people to leave. They'd been 
a very strong tendency for artists, scholars, going particularly to Ampar's India, which was at that point a welcoming place and there were opportunities of employment. So they get in this caravan, which is how most people traveled. These were hundreds and maybe thousands of people, depending on the kind of caravan they took. They already had three children, two brothers and an older daughter, and Asmat was very pregnant. And just outside Kandahar, the baby came. So the historical record establishes that this is what happens in 1577. And the legends are pretty incredible. One is that the parents abandoned her because this is the sort of area where people were often attacked and their caravan was indeed attacked and looted and so on. And so the legends say that they abandoned her and the caravan leader, there was a resting point, he went around and discovered this baby that had been left. So he picked up the baby and knowingly or unknowingly gave it back to the mother. And then there's another story, which is pretty powerful, which then becomes the kind of staple of films and fiction, which is that the father leaves the baby under a tree. And when he comes back, Asmat is desolate and she wants the baby back. And so he goes back. And when he goes back, he sees that there's a huge serpent that's protecting, has its hood over the baby. And he's very nervous seeing the baby that way. But this is a sign of magic and what is to come because of the wise serpent protecting the baby. And the serpent leaves and he takes this little girl who they name Mihirun Nisa, literally son, S-U-N, of women, and come to India. So interesting in what you're saying that to extract the story of Nur Jahan as she becomes later, you are wrestling with historical sources and legendary sources and indeed sources where the two are intertwined and in due course I would like to ask you about that process of working with these kind of tricky sources for a sort of standard historical approach and how we have to do that when we come to think about early modern women but hold that thought because I want for us to dive a bit more into what we know of Nurjahan first so people have a sense of everything you've established we know that her father was employed by Akbar the Great once he got to India. So I suppose it might be helpful to introduce listeners to the Mughal dynasty in India and explain a little bit of the background. The important thing to remember is that this is a peripatetic dynasty. The first emperor is Baba, the second is Humayun. And they come from Afghanistan mainly, but there have been a lot of contests in Central Asia before. The northwestern border of India had experienced this for a long time of various dynasties, even before the Mughals, such as the Delhi Sultanate and so on that had come before. So there was this kind of movement and migration, which is very much part of the early modern, before the nation states were formed. So the Mughals come, Babar establishes in 1526, after defeating Ibrahim Lodi of Delhi, the early dynastic establishment in Agra and around the Yamna River and so on. And then Humayu, his son, gets into exile. He's defeated by Sheikh of the Afghan dynasty in India, but comes back. And Akbar is his son, and historically he's called the great Akbar, essentially because he establishes the empire and its grandeur as we understand it. The cities are made, the first harem quarters are established, which is what I wrote very extensively in my first book, what it means to have the harem for the first time in a dynasty, which was really essentially very peripatetic. And a lot of wealth, agriculture, taxation policy, military victories through much of northern India, not into the south, which doesn't mean a completely subsume everything. 
there are contests and problems. So this is the dynasty that we are talking about. And by the time to turn to Nur Jahan's story, when her father comes to Akbar the Great, in Akbar's court, there is already an uncle of his wife, Asmat, who had been employed. And he plays a very important role in Akbar's victories in an important province of Gujarat. And also given Qayas's credentials of the kind of literary and very important family that he comes from, it wouldn't be surprising that Akbar would be thrilled to take him in his court. But it's not a very prominent position to begin with. So he's inducted into the court, but then he rises pretty fast. So maybe Noor is coming into Fatehpur Sikri as I always like to say this as Akbar's formidable aunt, Gulbadan Begum, is coming out of the newly built harem with a cohort of matriarchs and leading them across the sea. It's very interesting mentioning the creation of a sort of permanent seclusion, the haram for women. Would she have been secluded from male company if she would have been educated? Yes, definitely. So the aristocratic setup, we have to imagine hundreds of staff, their caretakers, they're very well established forms of literacy of women. There are no schools at this point, neither for boys nor for girls. But there is an Ustani, the teacher who would come to the house, and typically you would be trained in classically memorizing the Quran, but you would learn fantastic tales such as from masters such as Sadi, who writes The Rose Garden. These are little parables, learning about justice, learning about kingship, learning about love, learning about friendship, morals for the heart, things like that. There would be a lot of poetry because Gayasbe was a very important form in any case. And then there's writing, there's shooting. Aristocratic women learn shooting and shooting is something I really thought immensely about because of the skilled shooting of Noor Jahan later on. This is the moment she'll have learned, but there would be a women's section. There would be expectations around your behavior, where you can move, where you shouldn't move, what spaces you can go to, what you can't go to. People think, oh, a Muslim woman in the past, there's no education and they're secluded, which historically is not accurate. It's just that we don't put our minds to it and think, what does education mean? What does literacy mean? And if her poetry and her architecture, her dress design, her shooting, her rulership is anything to go by, then this is immense amount of training in her girlhood, but also in her first wedding, which I wanted to establish very strongly. Yes, so Jahangir wasn't her first husband. Tell us about the first match. Yes, the first marriage takes place when she's 17. We know one line from the record that she was married to this Persian man called Kuli. He was also an employee of the Safavid dynasty and was a table attendant, which is a very important job because the chances of poisoning the emperor was very high. So he too leaves and then he gets employed by a very important general on the border of Iran and India. And how the match is made, we don't know, but the two get married and she goes to the newly acquired province of Bengal. The mansions would be right in the middle of the forest. And which means that the duties of Kuli would demand that he would travel a lot. This is where Noor and Kuli have their first daughter, Ladli, meaning the beloved. There are no more children. 
animal life would be very much present in the scheme of things. So that's where I really believe that, you know, Rilla finished her hunting skills. So she's being formed in this period in Bengal and doesn't come back to Agra until 1608. So meanwhile, a major change has occurred. Akbar has died. Salim has succeeded as the Emperor Nur ad-Din Jahangir. And I suppose it might be interesting to think about his character, this man who will become her husband in the future, and what we should make of him. Yes, he's a very interesting character himself because he's been always positioned against Akbar. Which emperor isn't an egomaniac, but I think Akbar is a, really controls things. You can see this in the production of the Hamza Naman, the first manuscript in the atelier, which is about military victories of the uncle of the prophet. And he's a conquering king. He wants to establish things, right? And Jahangir, of course, revolts against his father when he's a prince, which was also a way of establishing his own identity and so on. And he sets up an alternate court in Allahabad. And he's a very moody, philosophical, very playful king. And I think he's like a classic prince to hug back to the European tradition, right? Akbar is also very cultivated. He's syncretic and he wants to know about different religious practices and ways of being. But he's really obsessed with being the millennial sovereign, that is Akbar, not Jahangir. Jahangir is more about conversations with ascetics. He is always on the road. And this, I think, was really quite an amazing eye-opener for me because I wrote in my first book about what did it mean to be a peripatetic dynasty and how by the end of Akbar's reign, you have the haram and you have that peripatetic dynasty being controlled, being encircled in many ways. He goes out, actually, of that confinement and sets up court wherever he travels. Now, I had to establish itineraries of his travel. And when he and Noor marry in 1611, starting 1613, they never stop traveling together. I really believe it's being out of the palaces and into the country that leads to her co-sovereignty. It's very simple to me. There's a bit of the puzzle that we need to fit in, which is what has happened to Nur's first husband, Kuli, and why Nur is in a position to meet Jahangir. The short answer is political machination. Ali Kuli, her husband, is one of the officers. We don't know exactly actually his position, but there are some indications that there were orders sent to him. He refused to abide by those orders. And he also apparently, according to the Jahangir Nama, actually, and again, very small lines in it, not adequate descriptions, that he was involved in a plot to kill the emperor. And so then Kuli and the governor of Bengal actually have a fight and Kuli dies. And by this time, we have to remember that Ghayaz Beg is the prime minister of Jahangir. Noor is then brought to the court because she is under the protection of the emperor once an employee of the emperor is killed. The story is more complicated. It seems her older brother and her father were also involved in some plot. Her father is just suspended for a little while and then he comes back. The older brother is killed. And so she comes to the harem and the dismissal accounts have been that she's a lady in waiting. She's not a lady in waiting. She's put under the care of the emperor's mother. 
and two other stepmothers. There's also another fantastic legend that she and Salim, that is Jahangir was called Prince Salim, had met in their youth and fallen in love. And Akbar did not agree to the marriage, according to these legends, because she was already promised to Ali Kuli. But according to historical sources, of course, they meet in 1611 in the famous legendary Mina Bazaar, which was really just intended for royalty, where merchants from across the world came and displayed the curiosities of the world and fantastic goods. And he sees her and falls in love with her. And in May of 1611, they get married and she becomes his 20th and last wife. I know that there were some observers at the time who thought that he had maybe a thousand wives. As you tell us, he had a mere 20, but obviously it's still quite a lot. Can you help us to understand what that meant, really, and what it meant for Nur to become wife number 20? Yes. The point is that a lot of these were political marriages. These were essentially to get the Rajputs very strong ruling houses by his side. Nonetheless, the question stays, this is obviously very difficult for the women who are being promised and given away this way. But this is not just Muslim empires, right? Political marriages are the case in much of the monarchical world, Western and non-Western. This is also actually establishes the strength and virility of the emperor, whether he sleeps with them or not is inconsequential here. With Jahangir, again, I could establish about eight of them. There were so many of the 20, and I will say so many, that, you know, with the record, you don't know. It's astonishing that in the first official history, the Agbarnama of Jahangir's father, his mother's name is not mentioned. There are metaphorical allusions to her. This is a literary convention, but it's a big problem for the historian to cull this material. I mean, from what I gauge of the way the succeeding history takes place, but also the way the marriage itself is recorded in the early 18th century, it seems like there was some clear attraction between the two. And it also seems to me that now she's in a very important position. Her father is the prime minister. Her brother, Asaf Khan, is of great stature in the court. And so if you look at the records from this time on, it really almost seems just Noor and Jahangir and everybody else becomes symbolic. She's so amazing in the documentation of what she does by way of architecture, poetry, her imperial orders. I would crave for a memoir, but it lessens nothing. It challenges me to think, what could she possibly have been thinking? And I don't think that this is planned, saying, OK, now I'm going to get on and be the emperor with the co-sovereign. I don't think it's planned that way, but it seems like a good arrangement, one that she willingly accepted. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. (laughs) 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we've talked a little bit about her family connections with her father and her brother but interestingly, there were also connections to note with some of the women in her life, her niece and her mother. Can you tell me about those? Her mother comes across beautifully in the record as this vivacious person. She would raise her daughters in this way of thinking. She is the creator of this gorgeous rose perfume. And there's this whole scene in the Jahangirnama that the emperor records. She's just sitting with very fragrant, particular kind of rose flower with water and it forms a foam and she collects it and it's very potent. And he gives her these gorgeous pearls. So this is the kind of woman we are talking about who's around all the time. Her niece is Mumtaz, the older brother Asif's daughter, who, of course, Noor's stepson, Shah Jahan, marries. And this is the legendary couple. And it's imagined that he builds the Taj Mahal in her memory. There is no historical documentation that will suggest that he builds this in her memory. But the relationship is a really interesting one. It's a very powerful relationship. So there is that. And then the relationship with her daughter, Ladli, which is undocumented. A beloved is a very evocative name, a darling one, but also that she doesn't have any other children, I think is also says something about Noor. And of course, the two together, Jahangir and Noor, don't have children. So this is an important point. One of the seminal sort of contributions of women who came into the royal families was to produce children. He already had four, and we just talked about Shah Jahan, the oldest presumed heir, with who Noor has very interesting relationship. And there are paintings depicting the two. So the stepsons are also really very interesting. Shah Jahan is, of course, ferocious. He knows this is the woman to look up to. And she's already by 1613, she's emerging as the co-sovereign. So what does it mean to be a co-sovereign is something I established. There are technical signs of it, such as the coins in both their name begin to emerge. By 1617, when they're in Gujarat in Western India, she's signing imperial orders with her own distinctive signature. So I read these very closely to figure out what was she doing with them? What was their character? So they're very much like any monarch's orders. And then there are informal signs of sovereignty, which is the slaying the tiger as the couple is going to Kashmir. He had taken a vow at that time not to kill any living beings with his own hands. And they're traveling and the villagers come and say that they'd been worried about this killer tiger. 
And this is a formidable scene in which this is mentioned in every documentation of the time. And I thought to myself, what to do with this thing of hunting that is repeatedly mentioned? You have to understand that in the pre-modern world, only kings had the right to kill tigers. And that too in certain kinds of situations. So this becomes an informal sign of sovereignty that Jahangir repeatedly writes about, about Noor's Hunting. That's so interesting. It boils down to understanding the symbolism, the significance of things in the time. That if there's page after page of praise of Najahan in the Jahanginamar, and he particularly praises her ability to hunt, it's got to mean something. And as you've told us what it means. And also, of course, I was struck by the fact that the illustrations in your book, the portraits we have of her, are not the usual fare. We see her playing polo. We see her killing tigers. So we have these sources if we will only look at them. In in the right way. Exactly. The Rampur Raza library portrait in which she's loading a musket. And Abul Hassan is the painter laureate of the court who actually draws this. And he's a master. And this is a portrait that's well known to art historians. But there's just such deep iconography by which I mean women were always shown before this time in highly stylized form, mainly beauties, bedecked, bejeweled, nothing wrong with this. But here she's very distinctive and importantly, she's loading a musket that suggests technical know-how. So this becomes an incredible portrait that I lived with for a very long time. And the other two that you're mentioning, these were done in the 1960s by a man called Haji Muhammad Sharif, who was reviving the Mughal school in Pakistan. So it's very interesting that to him, Noor's sovereignty was the first thing he goes to to draw these paintings. Ah, that's very interesting. I hadn't realised that they are later recreations. But maybe now is the moment to talk a little bit more about sources. We've mentioned repeatedly Jahangir's memoirs. You are also working from the memoirs of another woman at court. And although we don't have a memoir from Noor Jahan, we do have lines that she wrote. Tell us about that woman's memoir, but also about the chronicles and court histories and conduct books that you had to draw on in order to create this world. Yes, Angir's own memoir, which is the official history. So the other thing is that his father starts the process of commissioning history and he breaks from that and goes to the style of his grandfather, Babur, who writes his own beautiful Babur Nama. And he writes in that style of recollection and memorializing and stream of consciousness style. So there is that. There was his paymaster historian, and Hangir falls sick around 1624. And the paymaster historian, Mutamir Khan, actually continues the memoir to 27, his observations. In the 18th century, a court historian, a man called Muhammad Hadi, actually writes extensively. He recreates the whole Jahangiri period. And one of his amazing contributions is to write that penultimate scene of Noor going to save the emperor when one of the courtiers actually imprisons the emperor and how she rescues him, that fantastic scene on the river in which she actually gets on the howdah upon an elephant and fights. She loses, she strategizes again, and then rescues the emperor. So everything was acceptable, coins, orders, even hunting. But the fact that the woman could do this military action, I think this was just not acceptable to the men in the court. And this is the beginning of the end of her sovereignty. So anyway, about this time, there was also a poet from Shiraz, a man called Mullah Kami Shirazi, who writes a hundred page ode to her victory. 
And it's a beautiful manuscript that is in Aligarh. I made use of that. Historians had said, oh, this is panegyric. And my challenge to historians is in court histories and chronicles, what is not panegyric? Which guy is not going to write in adoration of such and such king? They're all in adoration. But just because a man is writing in adoration of a woman empress, you have a problem with it. There's a doubt. And I call this a male disbelief, essentially. So this is the range. But then architecture, the mausoleum of her parents on the banks of the Yemen, it's actually built upon the first garden that Babur lays in Agra, the first emperor. It's called Rambagh. And she builds a pleasure pavilion actually around it. It's pretty masterly. And then there's her parents' mausoleum, which is the first, it's called the jewel box. And if you look at it, it is the rickshawalas and everybody there call it the baby Taj. But actually it is the Taj. The Taj draws from Noor's parents' mausoleum as an inspiration. So then her own imperial orders, her signature is really interesting. We need to pay attention to it, in which she calls herself Noor Jahan Pacha Begum. Noor Jahan is, of course, her name. Pacha meaning king. Begum is an honorific. It's pretty formidable. So the sources are all there, and they're not scanned. That's the other thing. And then I took on legends, historic legends, starting in the 19th century and on to today, discussions with well-informed tour guides at various forts and things like that wove those into the historical narrative. Yes, so there's a sense that when we're thinking about women at this period of time, it involves a sort of certain necessary imaginative interpolation, but also drawing on perhaps a wider range of sources than if you're just writing a straight history of a powerful political male at the time. And yet she does appear in even those standard sources. I was interested to see that Sir Thomas Rowe who is the first English ambassador to the Mughal court, who writes reams and reams about the court and about Jahangir, and then Jahangir doesn't mention him at all, says that all justice or care of anything or public affairs either sleeps or depends on her. And you said earlier that the question you're most asked is, how did she get into this position? How did she take on a position never filled before by a woman in the empire? And suggested that the court's itinerancy might be one of those factors. The other factor that comes up is the possibility that it was Jahangir's alcoholism that provided opportunities for Najahan to leave. What do you make of that? He really drank a lot. But the point is, which of the emperors didn't drink? Because this was also part of the courtly ethnic. Humayun was chided by his father for not drinking because, in our terms, networking. So it's that. And Jahangir, too, has been written out of history in some ways. And there's been a lot of rethinking of him, partly because of his philosophical bent, his deep engagements with Hindu ascetics, with Muslim and Christian ways of thinking, but also this kind a formidable co-sovereign that he has. I certainly wanted to ponder this question. So I think it's a set of things that lead to her ascent. The circumstances, which are beyond anybody's control, that her husband dies and that she arrives, that's obviously a chance in history. But that her dad is in this amazing position, that the emperor is very drawn to her, that the current of history is on her side. But most importantly, I do want to insist this, she is ambitious. When the rise begins, she fights for her place till the end. And which is why I ended the book in 1627 by calling the chapter Beyond 1627. Because for that point, we have absolutely no way to navigate what she did between 27 and 
45, except we know that she designed this absolutely stupendous mausoleum of her husband and her own, which was architecturally unprecedented, essentially because he had willed that he wanted a mausoleum that was not closed but open to divinity. But that posed a very interesting architectural challenge. Her niece, Jahanara, actually follows her style and etches her name outside the mosque that she builds, which has not happened before Noor that women left their names outside architecture. So this is a woman who made herself, after her first husband died, in quite phenomenal ways. And I refuse to believe that she will have just donned black clothes and spent the rest of her years in mourning. That would be out of character. And so I think it is all of these circumstances, but it is the person in play because it is what you and I and she will make of it. I think that's critical. We can't take away the fact that this is the person who's thinking how to do this or do whatever that she wishes to do. Just two things that you've mentioned it would be nice to pick up on before we leave. One is her new name, the one by which we know her, that she's given in 1616 and the significance of that. And the other is you mentioned her relationship with Prince Karam, better known by his title Shah Jahan. It feels like early she's cultivating a friendship with him, but they fall out terribly. Those two things, could you tell us about those? I'll start with the latter. They fall out. He is very closely aligned. She celebrates his victories. She's part of the clique. So there was a study long ago. It was called the Nur Jahan Hunda. And if we are to take anything by it, it's suggestive. And again, I document how many people got employed on the Iranian side since her father and she came. So Shah Jahan and she were immensely close. They knew that their power dependent on each other. And when her daughter came of age, she marries her daughter to the fourth prince, Sharia, who's a very lovely but youngest prince born of a concubine. Now, there's been some conjecture that she could have married her daughter to Shah Jahan, but Shah Jahan was already married to her niece and had other wives. And having largely married Shah Jahan would mean really a lower status. And I am not persuaded. In any case, I think historically it doesn't seem that was in play at all. But she marries him to Sharia, and it's very clear how she begins to endorse his rise, which I chart in the book. And I think that threatened Shah Jahan, and he goes to the deck, and the rebellion begins. And of course, he builds his networks in quite amazing ways. And one of the biggest thing is that his father-in-law, Noor's brother, is a very important nobleman. And essentially, his withdrawal from her leads to a downfall. So that's the story about their relationship. The second question about Noor, which means light, is a very important concept, which is also part of Jahangir's name, Nuruddin Pacha Muhammad Razi. It's a very complex, illuminist philosophical thought that's related to sovereignty. But the idea really just simply illuminist philosophy, as it's called, or the Neoplatonic thought that connects with it, is that the sovereign is the chosen one of divinity. Through various screens of light, imagine light coming from above us, but I don't see why it can't come from below, given that we ought to now regard Mother Earth as much. But one way or another, let the light come. And it somehow sits in the center of the forehead of the select sovereign. But the important thing is also that it's only some others around him, select few, that can see that light of the sovereign. 
So Noor is that light. And Noor was the way these two were connected. She calls her gardens Noor Afshaba, Noor Afsaba. There's two of them. The coins all have that stellar connection. There are cities they rebuild in Kashmir with that illusion. So there's a statement, it seems to me, that they're making through this sovereignty. And certainly, it's pretty amazing that her parents call her Mirunlisa right? That the sun is already there in her destiny, so to speak. I've got one last question for you, Professor Lal. What do you think Nojahan's legacy has been? There's a lot of rethinking of our models and how we understand leadership or girlhood. The important thing with no and the kind of history I write more generally is to really center our humanness into it, our vulnerabilities. When women are powerful or men are powerful or we are powerful, we are not picture perfect, right? We have various kinds of angst. People relate to her. When this book came out, there was a whole Empress Twitter group in India and it had a lot of young people attaching themselves to her as a model. Over time, the book has got picked up by school kids quite a lot, actually two in England. And this the set of great teacher that I'll mention, I'm sure she won't mind, her name is Carrie Reese. And the girls wrote a 30-page, these are forms of poems, guzzles, drawing from this book. And I was completely blown out of my mind reading those. First of all, the poetic skill, but their thinking, their agility. These are people between nine and 12. So I'm going to have a conversation with these amazing young people. And then, of course, lastly, I'm inspired by these young people. I'm actually doing a remix of this book for young adults, and we'll be calling it Tiger Slayer. And this will be due out with Norton next year. And Molly Crabapple, a very fine artist from New York, is doing the illustrations and of course not just Noor loading the musket but she'll be drawing Noor shooting the tiger which we don't have. Ruby La, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. People can pick up a copy of your luminous book Empress The Astonishing Reign of Noor Jahan and it is a really wonderful read and I highly recommend it. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.